On our last holiday to McLean, the friends that we were staying with had just discovered geocaching. Now, some of you may not have heard of that, but geocaching is the latest sport for yuppies with four-wheel drives and GPS satellite navigation systems. It's kind of like a, a technological car rally kind of thing. You log on to the internet to a geocaching website and you get the coordinates of a cache, which is basically a hole in the ground with a bucket with a lid on it full of goodies. And you go along with a goodie like maybe a a um, pen or a um, souvenir of your town or some lollies. And when you find the case, you leave a goodie for someone else and you take a goodie for you. So what you do, you enter the coordinates into the GPS, jump in your four-wheel drive and off you go. Now, we didn't have a four-wheel drive and worse still, we didn't even have a GPS. But that didn't stop us. We decided to give it a go. So we printed out a Google map of where we were going and off we went. Half an hour later, we're on the side of a hill of a very steep cliff hacking our way through vines, scrambling over cliffs, uh, dodging smashed beer bottles, trying to find this geocache. We searched everywhere, under rocks, we're sticking our hands in holes in trees, we're looking under tufts of grass, and an hour later, nothing. Except for a few grazed knees, a few crying kids, and very bruised egos. So we gave up. So much for the wonderful world of geocaching. Anyway, when we got back to the top of the hill where the car was and we looked through the paperwork again, we discovered that we were looking in the wrong spot. The cache was actually half a metre from the car park where the car was parked, right underneath a monument. Uh, and if we were looking in the right spot, which we did, we found it in 30 seconds. So here's my tip if you go geocaching. One, get a GPS because it takes you within half a metre of the spot. And two, make sure you put the coordinates in right. See, no matter how hard you try, if you're looking in the wrong spot, well, you won't find what you're looking for. Now, our little geocaching episode and that lesson, I think, is not too different to some people when it comes to people searching for God. Some people may be working real hard. They may be striving with all their energy and might, and yet they're looking in the wrong place. And no matter how hard you try, how hard you serve other people, you will never find peace. You'll never find rest. You'll never find God if you're looking in the wrong place. And in John 13 today, Jesus sets us in the right direction. He tells us where to find forgiveness, where to find him, how to follow him. And over the next four weeks, we'll be looking at Jesus' last words to his disciples before he died. John 1 to 12 has covered the first about three years of Jesus' life. And it's taken us that long to cover it, hasn't it? We've taken about three years to get through John 1 to 12. Well, the rest of John covers the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. These last 24 hours are very important. 24 hours. So by John 13, Jesus has been around for a few years. He's been teaching people, training them. It's time for him to leave. And these are his departing words. And really... These are just the very basics of what it means to follow Jesus. If you don't get this right, you're heading in the wrong direction. If you don't get this right, then everything you attempt to do for God is a waste of time. So turn with me, if you're not already there, to John 13, and there's an outline in your bulletin. And John is writing here about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. John 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave this world 
and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Or he loved them to the end. The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. John spends the first three verses here, uh, before we even get to the foot washing stuff, uh, going into setting the scene. Now I've been watching 24 lately and every episode of 24 starts with this voiceover last week on 24 and then you get the previous episode just in case you missed it. Now that's what's happening here. John is saying last chapter in John's gospel, he's telling us the important bits to get us up to speed. Verse 1, it's just before the Passover feast. Now we already know that. Two episodes ago, John 11.55, was almost time for the Jewish Passover. Last episode, chapter 12, verse 1, six days before the Passover. Now, another reminder, just in case we missed it, it was just before the Passover feast. Why is that important? Why does John tell us that three times? Well, it's important because the Passover feast was when a lamb would be slaughtered to remember God saving his people. And John has already warned us right back in John chapter 1 that Jesus is the Passover lamb. John 1, 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Passover lamb who will take away the sin of the world and it's now time for that to happen. The whole of John's gospel has been waiting for this moment. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. The Passover is near. We're almost at the end of Jesus' life and John 13 is his farewell dinner. He's saying goodbye to his friends. And what he does at this farewell dinner is he basically he acts out a parable to his disciples. Let's look at what he does in verse 4. Because he's about to die, verse 4, so, because he's about to die, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped round him. Now, this is not just about him cleaning the dirt off the disciples' feet because they were dirty. This has a lesson in it. In fact, most of this chapter is not about the foot washing, but about the lesson Jesus wants to teach. He does something for them, but he does it to teach a lesson. In fact, there's two lessons, and you can see them on your outline. There's an obvious lesson a lesson that he thought they would get straight away. And then there's another deeper lesson that he says they will work out later. So let's look at those two lessons. Firstly, the easy one. Look down at verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is who I am. Now that I, 
your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Did you see the lesson? It's not hard to work out, is it? Jesus washed their feet and he tells them they should wash each other's feet. In other words, they should serve each other like he served them. It's a lesson on being a servant. And you can go and read all kinds of books and commentaries about what life was like 2,000 years ago when Jesus was round, and you'll find that this was a shocking thing for Jesus to do. Foot washing was the lowest kind of tasks reserved for slaves and so on. But you don't really need the history books to work that out. Look at Peter's reaction. Verse 6. Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And verse 8. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. See, Peter's worked out that this is strange. Jesus is the king of the universe. These are his disciples. I mean, they're the ones who've been helping him. They've been rowing him around in boats. They've been bringing people to him. They've been handing out fish and bread to the crowds. They've been putting him up in their homes. They're his disciples. They're his followers. He's the leader. The whole foot washing thing is the wrong way around. This would be like Leighton Hewitt in the middle of a hard tennis game stopping and getting a drink for his ball boy because the ball boy looks a bit tired. This would be like your elderly grandmother coming round and mowing your lawn on a hot day in the hot sun while you sit inside relaxing. It's back the front. It's not the way it should be. No wonder Simon Peter is confused. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? You will never wash my feet. That's the point. It's back to front. It's about serving people who don't deserve it. And if that's what Jesus did, that's how we should act. Look at verse 15. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, You'll be blessed if you do them. If you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus is calling you to love other people in the same way that he loved you. He's calling you to love people in the same way that he loved you. Now that's impossible, isn't it? Can we really love like Jesus? Can we really serve each other like he served us and gave his life? And I think that's the point. Jesus is calling us to do something that we can't do on our own. There's no way we can do that on our own. And so when we do it, it will be obvious to everyone that this must be the work of God in our lives. Look at chapter 13, verse 34. That's where exactly Jesus goes with this. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. There is a love here that if we have it, people will know we are Christians. This love has to be different to the way that the rest of the world loves. This is not the kind of love that you can muster up from your own goodness. 
If it was the kind of love that anyone could do, well, people would look at us and say, well, he's a nice person, she's a nice person. But Jesus says they will look at us and notice that we're followers of him. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We need to love other people in a way that we can only do because of the power God gives us through his spirit. The kind of love that will take transformed lives. It's not the kind of love that we can pretend to have. It's not something that we can just put on when we want. That kind of love will take a miracle. And I'm not talking about the kind of miracle that happens here at DPC sometimes on a Sunday. In fact, uh, this miracle sometimes happens in our family. Uh, Have you heard about it, the car park miracle? The husband and wife have been arguing all morning, fuming with each other, attacking each other, bringing things up from the past. They're angry as they arrive at church and then miraculously, as they pull into the car park, God's healing falls upon the car A transformation takes place and everything becomes calm. And they get out of the car and they stop shouting. And they might even open the door for each other and start speaking politely to each other and start saying good morning to everyone. The car park miracle. Now, that's not really a miracle, is it? Because anyone can put on a good front. And we all do. And we act lovingly because, well... We want other people to think that we've got it together. Or we don't want to embarrass people with our problems. Or we don't want to look bad. We do it because we want to look good. But real servanthood is not about putting on a mask. Real love is with, about a changed heart. Real love is about how you'll, speak, how you'll treat your spouse when you get back home again. Where you put the other person's needs before your own when you do it when no one else is looking, when you do it when there's nothing to gain from it and a lot to lose. On a motorbike, they have a reserve petrol tank. My scooter doesn't have one. It's not big enough. But the idea of the reserve tank is when you run out of petrol in the main tank, you switch to reserve and you've always got some spare fuel in the reserve tank. Now, I think that's often how we love. We we keep some love in reserve, but we never use it. We love to a point and then we stop because it gets too hard or too painful or too inconvenient. Uh, We can put up with so much, but then I really deserve better than this, don't I? And so we stop. Jesus loved without limit. And he says that's the kind of love we must have. Now that kind of love will take a miracle If we love like that, there can only be one explanation. We can only love like that because we've first been loved by Jesus. He who has been forgiven little, loves little. If you haven't been forgiven by Jesus, you can't love like Jesus. He who has been forgiven much, loves much. Which brings us to the second lesson in this parable. The first one, we need to serve like Jesus served us. The second one, there's only one thing harder than giving your life for someone else. That is letting someone else give their life for you. There's only one thing harder than giving your life for someone else. Letting someone else 
give their life for you. Come back to verse 7 with me. Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. See, this is the, sec- the hidden meaning to the parable. Jesus says, you don't understand it now, but later, after I die, you'll get it. The parable is about Jesus' death. And Jesus is saying, unless you let me serve you, unless, Peter, you let me wash you, unless you let me die for you, unless you let me take away your sin, you can have no part with me. The real washing is Jesus' death. That's what he's talking about. Verse 7, Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. This is about letting Jesus serve you. You can't serve other people. You can't serve Jesus unless you've first been served by him. doesn't matter how many good religious acts you do for Jesus. It doesn't matter whether you go to church. It doesn't matter that you help other people. It doesn't matter if you care for, for the poor. It doesn't even matter if you give your life away for other people. It's all for nothing unless you first have been washed by Jesus. Because if you haven't been forgiven by Jesus, you have no part with him. So becoming a Christian is a great blow to the ego, isn't it? It's humiliating. Because to become a Christian is to admit that no matter how successful we might be at work or home or school or whatever we're good at, in the most important area of our life, we've failed. To become a Christian is to admit that you need to be washed clean by Jesus. And for many people, for most of us, that's hard. Because it's hard to admit that you need help. It's not hard to cook a meal and drop it into somebody, but how hard is it to lift the phone and ask someone else to cook a meal for you? How many of you have done that? It's hard to ask for help, especially if you need it. Because it's admitting that you need help. What's more humiliating? To wipe someone else's bottom? Or to sit there helpless while someone wipes your bottom? That's why it's easier for people to try and work their way to heaven by good works. Rather than come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need your help. We want to be able to help ourselves. And Jesus says, you can only be my follower if you admit your life is a mess, you are dirty, you need washing. And what do people do by their response to Jesus, by their actions? They say, no, Jesus, you don't have to wash me. You don't have to go through all this for me. You don't have to make this fuss for me, Jesus. You don't have to die for me. How dirty can I be that you had to die for me? I can't be that bad, can I? No, Jesus, I want to do some of the work. I want to bring something to my salvation. Surely there must be something good in me that I can bring. Couldn't Jesus have had a bit more confidence in us and said, be like me. You can do it. Just try a bit harder. Look for that good inside you and bring it out. Thankfully, that's not how it works. Because none of us can be like Jesus. Jesus says, unless I wash you, 
You have no part with me. Might be easier to not deny that we need help. And yes, like Peter discovered, it's humiliating to let Jesus wash you, but there's no other way. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. And then, and only then, after we've been washed by Jesus, well, Jesus calls us to serve each other. Because we can only serve each other like he has served us if we've first let him serve us. Before we can serve Jesus, we need to be served by him. And having been served by him, we need to serve each other. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you might uh, deal us a severe blow to our egos and expose our pride and humble us. Not just so that we might come to Jesus and be washed by him, but that every day we might continue to trust in him and not try and add to his finished work. Father, we bring nothing in our hands. And we simply cling to your, the cross of your son. Naked, we come to you for dress. Helpless, we look to you for grace. Foul, we come to the fountain of your, uh, your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we cry, wash me, Saviour, or I die. And Father, thank you that you do wash us. And having... Uh, drunk from that fountain, we pray that we might be so transformed by your forgiveness that we might now serve each other like Jesus served us, that we might be humble enough and that we just give ourselves to serving each other so that people might not see us in our goodness, but they might see Jesus and glorify him. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.